Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm your host, Barry Moore. This is sort of an on-the-road edition of the Coming Up Next Time podcast, so forgive any anomalies. My next guest is Mark Wood. He is the creator of Tokyo Off-Road and many, many wonderful uh, little tools and gadgets to help you with your KTM and Husqvarna motorcycles. He comes to us from Japan. He has a lot of stories, including living under the threat of Kim Jong-un, tidal waves, earthquakes, and tsunamis. Uh, enjoy. Have a great day. Uh, so uh, we'll get started. I just want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me, Mark. And, thank you for uh, inviting me. Oh, man. Uh, big fan. Uh, I like your uh, no-nonsense sort of mechanical videos. Uh, you take everybody through the process and uh, you leave no one behind. So uh, thanks for that. That's great. Um, Please enjoy what, 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 Oh, thanks. What made you... Uh, first off, like, how did you find yourself in Japan? Uh, for work. Um, I, okay. I grew up in England and studied there. And then uh, when I finished studying, I saw a, a job advertised. I trained as an electronics engineer, applied for the job, and I got it. And uh, they flew me straight out to Japan. So, yeah, it was for work. Oh, nice. And uh, I guess England, uh, going to Japan, yeah, you have a lot more access to um, – wilderness for dirt bikes from, from what i understand in the, the english uh example for dirt bikes is just like farm roads and things like that yeah it's, it's pretty limited actually and quite restricted so um if you want to ride off roads especially nowadays um it's quite difficult and uh, you often have to travel quite a long way i know a lot of people now travel out to wales to ride because the riding in england is so limited how do you find the riding in japan Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, Japan is a very mountainous land, so uh, there's no shortage of uh, mountain areas to ride, and they're very sparsely populated, so um, you don't often run into problems of annoying people living in the areas because there is basically no one there. Oh, that's crazy. Uh, and what's dirt bike culture like there? Um, it's um, It used to be a, a lot uh, more popular, uh, like in the 90s. There was a big boom for off-road riding and bikes as well. The Japanese manufacturers uh, were pretty focused on off-road riding. Um, but the, certainly the people in Japan, the number of people riding has shrunk. But the people that do ride are very passionate about it um, and uh, really enjoy it. So it's a bit different from you know, 20, 30 years ago, but it's still very popular here. I uh, yeah, I have a oh well, not any longer. My my old neighbor was Japanese. Uh he was an older guy. Uh and his greatest passion was restoring like Japanese uh bikes from the seventies and eighties. Yeah. And uh he'd take them, make them like showroom beautiful and then uh sell them and start a new project and cry a little bit. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's getting people still do that uh, quite a bit, but uh, it's getting difficult to find parts for them now. Yes, yeah, he's done everything like uh, using little um, tea baskets to cover on carbs and stuff, like just yeah. to get by, make it look trick. It's like, but he makes the most beautiful things. Yeah, uh, so you manufacture a lot of uh, handy tools for everyone. Um, when did you? Th- like a lot of guys do that out of necessity. You're making it for yourself because you have a need. 
uh, what, what, what made you think that others would, would latch on and, and be supportive? So I started the same way. I just made a few tools for myself for my own personal use. Yeah. Um, and uh, then I thought other people must be having similar issues, not being able to find, you know, easy to use tools um, for their bikes. And I thought uh, I'd start selling some of them. So the first tool I started selling was the All Drain tool for KTM and Husqvarna two strokes. And that proved out to be pretty popular. There wasn't at that time anything, you know, similar. Um, yeah. And I took it from there. That was about four years ago now. Yeah. Now there's some clones. Motion Pro, I think, has yeah, there's like quite that. a few. That, that's got to be a pain in the butt. <laughs> you come up with well, uh, it's going to happen if you yeah. make something, you know, that's uh, popular. It's going to be uh, copied. And I don't have a patent or anything like that on it. So, are you still a software engineer? I'm actually an electronics hardware engineer. I did study software as well, but uh, I pretty much focused on more hardware. When you are making your videos and describing to us the, the steps you're taking, I can hear how much you love what you're doing. Like uh, you could have been a shop teacher or something like that, and you'd have had the, the best attendance from students. I don't know if you can hear yourself when you do this stuff. Like it's it's difficult to step back and do a third person self image. Where did that where does that come from? Who did you have a mentor or somebody who inspired you to be such a good teacher? Um, not really. Um, no. I get, when I make the videos, I try and uh, aim to provide information that if I was watching a video, um, that I would want to to gain from watching it. Um, so I, I try to share a lot of details and tips and. Uh, you know, information that you wouldn't normally get from just reading the manual. Hopefully that makes it a lot easier and also interesting for the people watching the videos. It's very interesting. Like, uh, I don't know if it's just because most times I'm looking for the answer and you're just giving it out. So I'm like totally focused, but um, I've watched some videos a number of times and I like the way you lay it out sort of like, okay, we're going to take this item and we're going to open it up. And your first instinct is to open it up like this, but don't do that, please. Go like this, <laughs> you know, because you stand a chance of breaking things. And you're like... Well, I, I want to enable people to be uh, successful um, at working on their own bikes because I know how expensive it is, you know, to take it along to the dealer and have them work on it. And uh, with a dirt bike, you have to perform pretty regular maintenance. Um, so if you can do it yourself, you can save a lot of money. But obviously, if you're breaking things, then it uh, starts getting expensive. And also, you can waste a lot of time waiting for parts if you've broken them. Yeah, yeah, wasting. Yeah, time is the big thing, hey. Right. Because um, you so, want to be able to ride every weekend, yeah. So yeah, um, if you can. Right. If you're repairing it or doing your maintenance during the week, you don't want to break something and have to wait another week and miss a, a weekend of riding. So, uh, how many hours would you say you get in in a year on your bikes? Um, I ride uh, pretty much every weekend, uh, but usually it's only one day. Um, so I, I guess I ride about 150 hours or so. Are you only a dirt bike rider, or do you do you get around town on a sport bike or um, like cafe racer or something like that? I have an adventure bike, a KTM 1190 Adventure R. 
I guess where, where I want to go, I don't know, like if you can remember your first bike. Yeah. My first bike, uh, was when I was a child in England. Um, I think I was about 14. Um, and I saved up money by doing various jobs. Um, and purchased a secondhand, a used uh, Yamaha DT175MX, um, which I loved. Because I didn't have much money, I had to maintain it myself. So that's where, where I started, uh, you know, maintaining. Develop. And, yeah, develop some basic knowledge of what to do and how to maintain the bike and keep it going without having to go to the dealer. Because when you're a kid, you typically don't have much money to spend on things like that. So. No, money's hard to come by as a kid. Right, and that carried over. But my passion has always been for off-road riding. Um, okay. As I said, I got an adventure bike, um, which I use mostly on the road, because when I do go off-road, I prefer to to use something you know lighter weight, which uh, um, I can do more real off-road riding and do hill climbs. Yeah, fair enough. Like hill climbs are, are uh, a lot of fun something yes. that I didn't think I would like because uh, hill descents are not fun for me. Right. But uh, I, I love my second off-road bike was a CRF 250X and it was just a tractor. And that really got me into climbing hills. Like I, it could just go anywhere. And uh, so it opened up a lot of doors and yeah, I don't know. I missed that bike. I shouldn't have sold it. <laughs> <laughs> So do you have any bikes that you've sold that you wish you could get back? Um, not really. I'm, um, I'm really enjoying the, um, you know, the, the later KTM two stroke models. Yeah. So, uh, I've got two 2017 models. Okay. Um, one is a 250. The other started as a 250 and is going to be a 300. Um, and then I've got a 2021 uh, KTM 300 TPI. So oh, I'm nice. Currently got three bikes. Yeah, I think I have a, a Husqvarna TE 300 uh, 2018. It's not TPI. Uh, it's just like still carbureted. And uh, that was the first two-stroke ever, or it was the first dirt bike I ever rode that felt the way I always imagined a dirt bike would feel. Yeah, it's it's a very different feeling when riding a two-stroke. I always uh, feel when I get on my two-strokes that, you know, I feel as I'm like 15, like a teenager again. And uh, it just makes me feel young. And uh, because the bike's light and responsive, um, they feel very playful and encourage you to, to uh, you know, do interesting things off-road. <laughs> Which you, you might not do if you're on a, a bigger, heavier bike. Most of the riding out there is really remote and that you're able to ride uh, most weekends. D like Japan has a winter uh, in the mountains. Yeah. Does that ever get in the way? Uh, occasionally. Um, but we're lucky that there's, um, you know, the, the whole of Japan is covered in mountains, basically, from the north to yeah. the south. And depending on where the mountains are, they can get heavier snowfall or virtually no snowfall. So there's nearly always somewhere you can go um, which hasn't got snow. So uh, this season, I've been able to go every weekend pretty much and haven't been restricted by the weather. Um, other seasons, often there's a weekend where, you know, there's snow just everywhere. And, uh, yeah. 
you can still do a snow ride, which is fun in a different way. Uh, yeah, there isn't a long there isn't a long uh, period where you, where everywhere is snow covered, which is uh, really nice for riding anyway. Heck yeah, yeah. We like I'm in uh, Alberta, Canada, and uh, the snow gets pretty deep. The right. fellas here stud up the tires. Like there is a snow riding culture here. The guys just go out and some and girls. Um, but like, yeah, it's a, a, bit, a pretty big investment uh between i don't know 600 and 900 dollars to stud up your tires right and if you don't like it uh sort of <laughs> that sort of sucks <laughs> yeah I, I do have a set of tires with studs on and it's fun but it, it's very different from uh regular riding traction is awesome on uh, the hard stuff the ice etc but uh not so great on you know deeper snow yeah you just need a good set of uh knobby tires for the deep snow yeah, fair. And then, um, okay. So, like, I, I try to do some background on you other than just uh, watching all of your videos. <laughs> yep. But, um, so you're a pretty, pretty secretive fellow, hey? Like, uh, I mean, you are communicative. Like, you, um, you're out there. You, you mean do, on the you, videos? Yeah, yeah. You're always, yeah, you're always, like, kind of off, off camera. Yeah, I, I appear on a couple of them, but, um, my thought is that, like, especially in instructional type videos where I'm doing maintenance, the videos aren't really about me. It's about doing the, the job on the bike. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I don't really need to appear on those. I'm yeah, not the, the uh, subject of the video. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and um, I was talking with Kyle Brotherson about uh, – being a YouTube content maker. And one of the, th the things that came up from that conversation was uh, dealing with the negative comments inside the threads. Do you ever read your comments or do you just, you just post I and read? Um, not quite a hundred percent, but close to a hundred percent. And I oh, reply wow. to uh, the majority of comments. So yeah, I do get some negative comments and uh, I, I often do reply to the negative comments, but uh, oh, really? I try not to be uh, emotional. Yeah, there you are. Yeah. Sometimes the negative comments are actually a misunderstanding about something. So uh, you might read it and think, hey, this guy's being really negative. And um, many times they're not actually intentionally being negative. They might just misunderstand something or what you're doing or what you're saying. And if you reply asking for more information or, um, in a different way, they often um, appreciate that, and uh, it turns out they're not being negative at all. Okay. Oh, that's sweet. So yeah, it's often important not to just jump to conclusions when you read a, a comment. And uh, yeah, I, I never get into a, a fight in comments. As uh, I don't, I, it gets very neg negative and. Uh, no real benefit comes out of that. So I, I don't engage in that type of activity. Yeah, no, uh, it doesn't sound like you're the type of guy to pick a fight. that's going to go nowhere anyway. Like no. The, yeah, the, that's just, it's a side, downside, I guess, to putting yourself out there. Like, uh, one big reason I, I started doing the videos was, uh, to enable people to be able to work on their own bikes. It, it really started with a friend of mine. 
um, who got a new bike, wanted to do a lot of the jobs and was always asking me question, question, question. And a lot of it is in the manual, but a lot of it isn't. So I just started uh, by doing some, you know, easy things. And then when the questions came from my writing buddies, hey, how do you do this? I just sent them a link to the video. Okay. <laughs> to make life easier for myself. And uh, a lot of other people uh, were interested in them. So it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, but yeah, the, my intention was to promote a, a positive image of uh, riding and doing the maintenance. And there's absolutely is it zero point in uh, doing stuff if you're going to be negative about it. You might as well not yeah. make any videos, I, th I think. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Unless you're going to go go full Jerry Springer and have like <laughs> chairs flying across the screen. <laughs> I don't know if everybody would know that, but yeah. Uh, it sounds to me like you're a fellow who, who basically identifies a problem and then works for solutions. And if, if, if you can be the solution, then that's, that's what it'll be like. Right. So uh, for example, the KTM service manuals are um, very good in general. They have a, a very good level of information, but some of the things uh, published in them are, are not very clear. The photos are sometimes not very clear. So uh, it makes it difficult to actually see how you do something or what orientation the part should be in, uh, or sometimes it's not mentioned at all. So things like that. Um, if I see a, a clear gap, uh, it motivates me to make a video and to share, you know, whatever information I might have. I would imagine you get a number of, of uh, query kind of emails, people asking you for advice and help on a lot of things. What tends to be the biggest hurdle? I'd also imagine most of your riders or most of your followers are new riders or intermediate riders mechanically. Uh, so they're, they probably come with a lot of the same questions. No, the questions are all over the place. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, from bike jetting to suspension setup to, you know, bike recommendations in general. So, yeah, a, a really uh, broad array of questions, which keeps it interesting. So do you ever have to research to give them back the answer, or is it just you shoot from the hip kind of thing? Uh, if they're asking for particular part numbers or whatever, I, yeah, I'm always very careful to research into that and give the correct information. I don't want to give out a part number and people go off and buy it and it's the wrong part. Yeah, when you were doing putting the Zeta kit in your friend's bike there for the rebound tool, you'd taken a socket and right. uh, cut it. So I had to dig all of the comments and then I found it was like a 32 millimeter socket. So I made one just because. You can buy a tool, but uh, I didn't have one and I just decided to make one. It was actually quicker for me. It's much faster. And I had a spare 32 millimeter and I think it's like 12 bucks for that versus 40 bucks for the tool. And you still have to torque anyway. So it just seems like the right way to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I had an old set of sockets, which I, I'll probably never use again because they're yeah. not particularly good quality, but fine for that job. So so are you in a metropolis or are you in a rural area? Yeah, I'm in Tokyo, uh, the south part of Tokyo. So fairly central. I thought you used Tokyo just because everyone would figure it out. No, that's where the, the uh, name for the channel came from uh, in the shop. So you have a shop? An online shop. So with off-road riding, is there like a racing culture in, in Japan for off-road now, or is it? Yeah, the, there's all types of off-road racing here, um, going from motocross through uh, cross-country riding. Yeah. So in the States, you have the G GNCC series. Okay, yeah, in yeah. Japan, you have the JNCC. 
Oh, sweet. Um, and then there's hard enduro and, you know, everything in between as well. And all levels from beginner through to um, professional. There aren't many professionals here because there isn't that much money in it. If you want to race, um, yeah, you can race pretty much throughout the year as well. They do have season. Have you ever raced yourself? Or I race occasionally now. Um, I did a couple of races last year. I did a video of one of them, which was a hard enduro race back in, uh, I think it was November. Uh, and how did you find racing versus just regular weekend riding versus uh, a weekend warrior race, I guess? I like uh, racing occasionally. It's obviously a completely different feeling because there's so many other riders. Uh, when I do race, particularly in a hard enduro type race, I don't really think of it as a race. It's more of a challenge for myself. And uh, certainly the, the last race I did, um, my challenge that I set for myself was to do one lap. Nice. Um, because it's a pretty tough course. And I was in the, the hard class, and I wasn't sure whether I'd get round because some of the hill climbs are pretty tough. And I was pleased that I did do one lap, and I got round. So, uh, That's awesome. But, yeah, as I say, there's so many riders, and some of those sections are just littered with bikes and riders, and it's very difficult to get through. And certainly if it's a, a steep hill climb and uh, you don't have a, a clear path to uh, – right up uh, it makes it extremely challenging so some of you have to be quite patient to you know pick your time and spot um and not just charge at it so it's quite different from a, a motocross or a regular enduro type uh, race but i really enjoy it and uh certainly for me you know i'm getting on in years and uh the hard enduro type racing even though there are some steep up uphills and downhills in general it's uh relatively safe um the speed is lower and the chances of someone hitting you are, are lower as well so I, I enjoy that type of riding now i've uh, only raced a few uh enduro style races and you're right about the hill climbs being littered with people yeah uh, you watch some of the ersberg or, or or romaniacs or any of that kind of stuff and they just ride over each other like <laughs> just an obstacle which is intense yeah in the the amateur levels, there's less of that. It's not yeah. uh, it's not zero, but people in general are more considerate, and they're not in much of a hurry. And the majority of people think of the race like similar to me. I think uh, more of a personal challenge than trying to you know beat everyone. For, oh, for me, I don't even care if I like. I just want to complete it. I don't right. care about anything other than that. Right. Uh, it just it feels so rewarding. Right. Um, like as a casual rider, I can go the same course or what have you, but I would do it at a different pace and I yeah. can easily make that loop. Right. Right. But in a race setting, I guess. Uh, well, you, you push yourself as well to do uh, things that you wouldn't necessarily do on a regular ride because it just comes up in front of you and you just, you know, ride into it as part of the course. So you're kind of forced to do it. Which, if you're trying to improve your your level, um, it's uh, it's a good thing to challenge yourself. Obviously, you don't want to get injured, but uh, yeah, well, nobody wants to be injured because right. <laughs> we all we all have to go to our job. At, like right. most of us have to go to our job. Yeah, yeah. What's your favorite kind of obstacle then? Well, definitely hill climbs. I love hill climbs. Yeah, I can see it. Like, yeah. no one. I, it's too bad that like because this is audio only. No one will see how how you say hill climb. <laughs> You're just going to yeah. have to hear for it. <laughs>
Well, you watch awesome. most of my uh, recent videos, and, and a lot of the video is uh, hill climbing. Good hill climb, um, especially longer ones, are just so much fun. You keep yeah. the, the bike fairly wide open and going, and uh, it just feels awesome. Hands down. Like there, there's a few spots here, kind of like an avalanche chute, and flying up those, uh, when you crest the top, you're just like, yay. <laughs> Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to turn around and you don't want to do it again. Like, it's just, they're kind of brutal. I don't know. Don't know how to describe it. You enjoy the racing and clearly you enjoy the maintenance. Uh, what, what about motorcycles do you dislike? Uh, not really. I, I mean, off-road bikes, um, particularly the, the more race-orientated ones, like most of the bikes, KTM, Skvana, Produce, um, they're relatively simple in their construction and very easy to work on and maintain. Uh, you can do any job very quickly, yeah. Um, but other types of motorcycles, especially ones with fairings on, I don't really enjoy working on those. It's just everything is a pain to get to and takes forever and there's hidden fasteners and, yeah, that can be a pain. Even my adventure bike, the 1190, is a bit like that. It takes a long time to get to what you want to get to. Uh, I, I really enjoy working on the off-road bikes. Yeah, because you're just sort of bare bones. That sort of takes away from them a little bit. But yeah, I, I can see what you... Well, even something like, you know, removing the engine from the bike. You can do it so quickly. You're going to have the engine out in about an hour. You were in England as a kid, and then you came over here. How old were you when, when you came to Tokyo, or when you went to Tokyo? Um, how old was I? 23. You've been there for a little bit. <laughs> that was in 89. Yeah, um, that's crazy. I'm uh, 55. I imagine, guys, because you can fix bikes, I imagine that people are always lining up, have you work on their machines. Does that keep you pretty busy? Uh, not so much. I mean, I do uh, help out some of my riding buddies. and uh, Okay. Occasionally, uh, some of my customers here in Japan, they'll buy something and need some help if they live in Tokyo. Yeah. Like the selling parts and everything else help fund. Like, I, I don't imagine that's just going to make you rich, but does it at least help make riding every weekend more affordable or easier to do? Yeah. I mean, it, it pays for my riding, um, but I have a family and kids. Uh, two of them are still in education, so I have to pay for that. Um, so yeah, I have a day job as well. So still in engineering. Yeah. I, yeah, I figured that you're still the day job. I don't know anybody who doesn't have, like, this is just a side hustle being a YouTube, uh, star and, uh, and selling the Tokyo off-road branded parts. Right. And I, I make, uh, you know, the, the tools myself. So that takes quite a bit of time. Um, I enjoy doing that and developing new tools as well. But the tools that I make, uh, basically, um, I come up with the idea from working on the bikes myself and doing jobs myself and thinking, oh, it would be handy to have a, a tool to do this or, you know, to drive this seal in or whatever. I, I don't think up things um, to make money. No, I get Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my impression, they were always, like, utilitarian. Like, you found a need, so then you designed – a solution and then you exactly. hope that other people might want to buy it. Yeah. I typically won't uh, make a, a tool that, you know, some other company is already making. I still see very little point in that because I, I can't be particularly cost competitive either because I'm making stuff myself. I'm not going to make, I'm not using a factory to churn out things. 
So I can't make it uh, extremely cheap. So yeah, my niche is uh, to provide tools that other companies aren't producing. Have you thought about upscaling at all? Um, a little bit, but really, as I say, my current business model is is not doing that. It's more of a niche yeah. market, and the the volumes are relatively low for a lot of these tools. So uh, I it would make a lot of sense for factories to start making them. The volume is, is not there, but uh, things like the the old drain tool, um, I guess the volume is there because uh, yeah. there's quite, quite a few very similar tools to the one I um, came up with four years ago now. So yeah, that's that's what I mean. I just like I wonder if the the market's niche, and and so then it's kind of like a bit of a secret. And then with the right exposure, you know, you could have your KFC moment kind of thing. Yeah. So I just wondered if somebody partnered with you or whatever, they couldn't push it around the world and, and make you a successful guy. Like, not that sounds bad, but make you like more money than, than, than you thought you were going to get out of those tools, I guess. Right. But the business has grown um, quite a bit over the years. Um, so it keeps me uh, very busy, too busy sometimes. Yeah. But it's up and down. It's not... Uh, it's not constant, so would be difficult for me currently to, you know, set up a, a big business and hire lots of people to support yeah. that. Well, I don't think that this is the right time to get people together anyway. Right. Is, is COVID uh, hard on, on life out there? Yeah, I mean, the, the number of cases is uh, relatively low um, compared to many other countries, but... Uh, even now, Tokyo is in a state of emergency, so there's yeah. quite a few restrictions. Um, stuff like uh, many shops will close earlier than normal, and uh, restaurants are affected. Uh, they're still open, but uh, they can't serve out alcohol after you know seven or eight o'clock at night and things like that. And most people are, are working from home, yeah. um, myself included. So. And anything related to tourism has been really impacted. Some of my uh, my friends, uh, you know, they have uh, ski lodges in the ski areas, and they they relied a lot on uh, you know visitors, overseas visitors, and that's pretty much gone to zero. So they've had yeah. a really tough year. And is the is the Japanese government gonna provide them some kind of assistance or? Yeah, they do. Um, they do provide some payouts, but it, it's not. Uh, doesn't cover all their expenses. Yeah. Hopefully, sometime after summer, things will improve, particularly after the yeah. uh, vaccines have been rolled out more fully. Yeah, that's like our hope here. They they expect by the end of August, um, anybody in the province who'd wanted to be vaccinated will have been vaccinated. Yeah. And then uh, it'll come down to being on board or not. And then sooner or later, the government's going to have to lift the restrictions because... Yeah, not the kind of country where you can force everyone to do something. Right. So once you've had maximum saturation, that's it. Go forward. Has it impacted the kids? Like you're, they go, they still go to school. Yeah. Uh, um, so my oldest kid started working, um, and he's only been into his office a few times. So he's been working from home pretty much from the start, which is uh, interesting. Uh, my middle one uh, was going to university in Canada, actually, in Toronto. Okay. And he had to come home early, and he hasn't been back there, so he's studying remotely online. 
So he has some some of his lectures in the middle of the night, which is quite challenging. But uh, oh man, yeah, he's doing that. Um, my youngest one is uh, going to school, so she was uh, studying at home for a period, uh, but they've been back in class for a while now. So it's oh, that's much, nice. Much back to normal. I feel like there's an impact on kids, like socially. Yeah, um, the, and like for in the the middle of it, my kids started to behave poorly. You know, like. Uh, trying to test the boundaries that he would never have tried it before. Like, uh, and it was all because he had no friends and mom and dad were just not a lot of fun. So I just imagine all the kids, especially like high school, university, like they're in the prime of their life and they're, they're pretty much aware of it. And then sort of, they get their freedoms infringed upon just when like life started to get independent. Right. And a big part of that development is obviously interacting with their, their friends and peers. Yeah. Um, having that removed it makes it very challenging even though they can still communicate online it's uh, not the same as actually being with other kids so have you ever been back to england like have you brought the family home kind of thing i used to go back fairly regularly um one at least once every two years yeah so i would uh, often go back in the summer or, or the end of the year you live in a place that's so amazing they're both sort of foreign worlds to me the uk and J- japan now, united kingdom i've only been through an airport there and japan not not yet haven't been there at all i only have sort of like a comic book and cinema imagination of what it's like to be in those spaces yeah so i mean a- japan is a great place to uh to visit um yeah from tokyo big city um you know it ordinarily um you can find stuff to do at any time in the day or yeah. night. Uh, eating is fantastic. There's so many different restaurants. Um, really fun place to be. Um, but then you move out to the countryside, into the mountains, or you can go to the ocean or whatever. Um, and the mountains, as I say, you know, you, you only need to travel an hour, an hour and a half out of Tokyo, and you can be in the middle of nowhere with no That's one around. Cool. So. Uh, yeah. It's a very interesting country, um, and certainly initially, um, the culture, the language, the food is uh, so different from, you know, the U.S. or England. Uh, it's very interesting. How did you adapt? I was kind of thrown in at the deep end. So I came when I first came over. I knew pretty much no Japanese. Okay. Um, and I was working for a fairly large Japanese audio manufacturer as a design engineer. And the rest of my team, everyone is uh, Japanese. And they were actually told to speak Japanese to me and not English to force me to learn Japanese more quickly. Um, but I, I was lucky. I was given pretty intensive Japanese lessons. Um, so for the first month or two, I had lessons every day. And then it gradually tapered off until um, after a, li- a year stopped having lessons. But I picked up language pretty quickly. And what about like like the, I don't know, in the West after work, the boys go down to the pub and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Did you find their, their version of that uh, similar or different? Yeah, it's very common to uh, go out uh, for not just drinks, but food. Um, yeah, food for sure. Work. Not every day, but you know, at least once a week or so. And most people are using the trains, so um, they're not driving. So drinking quite a bit is uh, very common after work. Okay. So that's uh, somewhat different from certainly England, where you know typically you'd probably only have 
one beer or two beers and then go home yeah. afterwards. You met your wife in Japan, I imagine? or Yes. Yeah. And how did that uh, play out? Right. My wife was actually a flight attendant. And oh, okay. I first met her in a bar. <laughs> oh, well, that's okay. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Just having drinks and got chatting. So where, if you could ride anywhere, like anywhere in the world, where would you like to go? Um, I'd definitely like to um, do some riding in North America uh, when the situation improves. Um, I haven't ridden there at all, and I know there's some fantastic areas to ride. Uh, oh, yeah. Throughout the States and Canada as well. So uh, I'd definitely like to do a, a longer trip uh, in North America at some time. Um, I'd also like to travel down to uh, New Zealand, if possible, at some time, because I know there's some great riding there as well. Do your, do your kids ride? A little bit, yeah. yeah. They're not uh, not so into it, but uh, occasionally they, they come along with me. I uh, bought the kids a, a uh, what was it, a, a Honda QR50. Okay. My oldest one was uh, five. I got him that, uh, thinking he'd love it. And he rode it a little bit, but never really got into it and my middle one was the same and i don't really like forcing the kids to to ride yeah uh, i'll encourage them to if they want to and show interest but uh i'm certainly not going to push them to do it um and yeah the, the kids you know i think in general now they have so much uh to do so many different opportunities um that you know, unless they they really show interest, uh, I don't feel um, comfortable in putting pressure on them to to go riding. Is there anything about yourself that no, no one really knows? Like, yeah, I mean, I've always been into various different sports. So when I was a kid, I grew up playing soccer and athletics and tennis. I was always very um, passionate about those sports. Uh, I played basketball as well. Um, but as I mentioned, when I was about 14, I bought my first bike and that just really changed everything. Uh, the, um, I lived in the countryside, I grew up in the countryside. So, um, even not having a license wasn't really a problem. I could just ride up into the hills and spend all day. Uh, one of my f friends had a similar bike and we'd just go riding for the day up in the hills and the sense of freedom of being able to do that when you're, uh, fairly young kid is just uh, incredible and you know learning to ride the bike and start doing wheelies and some jumps and things like that was a lot of fun and a, a feeling that you know you really never forget um and then you know i studied um engineering and i really didn't have any time to uh, to ride at all and then moved to japan and then I got the urge uh, to start riding again. So I got a, a uh, what bike was it? A Honda CRM 250, which is a two-stroke uh, enduro, well, more dual sport bike. And um, I had a good uh, group of friends at work that like riding off-road. Um, so at that time, you'd ride out from Tokyo. So we'd ride to Fuji a lot of the time and ride around Mount Fuji. And back then, uh, you were allowed to. It's perfectly legal to, to ride around Mount Fuji. Um, now you're not allowed to. They've gated off uh, most of the trails, and it's become a, um, a national park. So you can't okay. ride there anymore. 
Um, so I started doing that, and um, I got more interest in doing real off-road riding. Um, and the next bike I bought after that was a KTM 250 EXC, uh, which was much more capable, more powerful, lighter. And I started doing some enduro races. I uh, really got into that. And then I had a series of Honda CR250 two-stroke bikes. And that got me in, more into motocross riding. Yeah. Um, and I'd still do some enduro riding as well. Um, I actually modified one of those CR250s uh, with lighting and a bigger tank. And I registered it for road use as well. So I'd do some uh, riding out on it um, to trails, etc which uh, was quite interesting on a motorcycle, like basically. <laughs> um, and then after those, I got, uh, I got a KTM 500 four-stroke bike um, and I started doing more trail riding. And then that escalated more into um, getting closer to hard enduro type hill climbs and uh although the the 500 is a great bike it's not particularly light so i just had to start getting two strokes and uh yeah ended up with the bikes i have now but along the way um japan is uh is mountainous has good winter seasons so i really got into snowboarding as well oh, and uh i was very passionate about snowboarding um in the winter season. So I'd snowboard from about November through the summer. So there okay. were still, still places you could snowboard at higher elevations um, in the summer months. One place I used to go to would only open uh, in about March, had so much snowfall, and it would stay open until about July. It only had a couple of lifts, but uh, it's quite an interesting place. That's crazy. That's crazy. And also, uh, from fairly young, I've been big into water sports. So, um, very passionate windsurfer. Um, I, I stopped windsurfing about four years ago, though. Um, okay. But before then, I, I was regularly windsurfing. You, you, you talked about, um, I used to be able to ride around Mount Fuji. And, yeah. uh, then they, they sort of closed up those trails because they turned it into a national park, which seems to be uh, pretty common um, globally now. Is, is it difficult? Uh, is it, are the, are the, the trail systems sort of under threat of being closed off to motorcycles? Yeah, it's a real uh, mixture. I mean, you can still find plenty of trails that uh, you can ride along, no gates, no one there. Um, some others are gated and, um, some others are kind of gray zone. So it's okay. a real mixture. In general, people don't seem to mind too much, but Fuji is definitely an area where you shouldn't ride. If you get caught there, you'll probably get a, a big fine. Although I, I haven't heard about that happening, but, uh, there is, uh, definitely, you know, that could happen. But I mean, there's so many errors and so many trails, uh, that, there's no shortage, so it's not really an issue. And there's not that many people riding uh, off-road or dual sport, so it's it's not a, a big issue. There's not a lot of pressure. Uh, okay. 
And I find here we have like, we have public land, we have private land. Uh, and then the public land sort of divided up in different kinds of use, national parks, provincial parks, wildland, and then uh, multi-use. And uh, it seems as though the pressure, there's pressure from environmental groups on the government to shut down those multi-purpose areas to uh, like, there's a, there's a, a movement in Canada to sort of make it uh, pretty much against the rules to ride off, off, um, off road other than sort of super designated areas. Right. Like, um, so I just wondered, I know in England, you guys or everybody in England, they have that kind of, problem because the land is yeah, owned England is pretty else. similar i think uh, here it's quite different there's not a lot of pressure from environmental uh, groups um it's more event driven if uh, okay. if something happens um for example one of the trails i used to ride quite regularly um someone had an accident went off the the side of the trail down a cliff and died okay um, and that caused the trail to be closed because it was deemed dangerous. So it's that, it's that type of uh, thing that happens here. Oh, that's yeah. Certainly, when I'm out riding, um, I obviously don't want to have an accident like that or any of my riding buddies. So we're careful about that, but also consider of uh, other people that we might meet. Typically, um, the areas we ride in, you meet very few people. But occasionally it can happen if there's someone out hiking or cycling or whatever. We always slow right down, stop, say hello, have a little chat, um, and you know try to be considerate and pleasant. And that minimizes the chance of you know anything negative happening afterwards. Yeah, uh, that's my policy. Be a good ambassador. Chat yeah. them up. Um, yeah, I let them. Like I'd let them ride the bike if they wanted, <laughs> but most of them are afraid to even touch the throttle. So, you know, uh, yeah, the idea of just take the scary out of, out of it. Uh, so that they're just like, Oh, like they see us as human beings and not just the helmet and the, the goggles on the right. scary machine. But yeah, That's we do crazy. try to ride in, uh, areas where there is no one else and that there's no, um, housing close by. Or, so you're not annoying anyone while you're riding. It's getting harder uh here with the pandemic to be places where there is no one else people who would never leave the city now are in the the woods and they're in places that nobody would ever hike and so you're going through on your dirt bike and all of a sudden there's a person there you'd never seen a person kind of thing yeah here the hiking trails are quite well defined and marked as hiking trails and we certainly don't go on those um so yeah typically we don't run in, into uh any issues like that oh sweet and then do you guys have um, wilderness police? Like we have uh, conservation officers. Uh, yeah, there's they, they um, There's occasionally you, you'll get a police car, but it's very, very occasional. And okay. uh, they're only out because um, of a complaint. There was one area we used to ride in, which was close to a golf course. Okay. And uh, there was a car park right by the road, and we were getting, you know, geared up, ready to write, and a police car pulled up and started having a chat with us, asking where we were going to ride. And uh, he basically said, yeah, don't ride by the golf course because they complain, and then I have to come up and deal with it. And it just ended up saying, ride safely. 
<laughs> that's awesome. So that's the kind of guy you want to encounter. But yeah, there's uh, typically it's not police; it's uh, more forestry people that you might run into while you're riding. Um, but most of them, you know, don't seem to mind that much. But it depends what you're doing, obviously. I guess you guys have had some pretty bad earthquakes yep. and uh, natural disasters and like yes. uh, a nuclear yeah. meltdown. Yeah. <laughs> Has that made you think maybe it's time to move to another space? Or No, I'm, re- I'm really settled here with a family. Uh, I have my own house, et cetera. Yeah. The dog, you know, so it wouldn't be easy for me to move somewhere else. Um, and you basically just deal with the natural disasters and uh, cope as best you can. So Japan, I mean, does have a lot of natural disasters, earthquakes, typhoons. Um, mm-hmm. But it, there's also many positive things as well. Um, kind of balances out over the years. That's fair. Like with like a tsunami or or an earthquake, unless your property's destroyed, it's just sort of to me how I'm wired. It would just be like, oh well, uh, rebuild and get back to it. Like right. where I live, we had a huge flood, and at the time where I was living, it didn't impact me, but it destroyed uh, many homes. You know. And uh, everybody rebuilt and just got back to it. I imagine it'd be the same in any community, honestly. Who's going to abandon a spot just because some water came by? No, I'm just curious. I never lived through an earthquake that uh, you could actually feel. Um, most of the ones I've encountered have couldn't even shake a cup of water. Yeah, I had some big, big ones throughout the years. So it's something you never get completely used to. When they do occur, it's not a surprise. And um, I, I'm, if I'm, for example, in the office working, and a big earthquake hits, I'm pretty much always the first one to to jump up and start moving towards the exit and open the door, make sure it's open so you can get out. Whereas other people are uh, a little more relaxed. I guess if you grow up with it, uh, it's not as scary. Right. How was your first earthquake? Uh, yeah, the first one I remember, I, I'd uh, just got into bed and I'd actually had a few beers. Um, <laughs> So when it started, I wasn't sure what was going on. <laughs> when I had slightly too much to drink, and then I, I realized that it was an earthquake. Uh, it wasn't a huge one, but uh, I've experienced some really big ones, and they're, they're pretty scary. Do you know the, the magnitude of the biggest one you experienced? Yeah, the, it was the, the one that was uh, 10 years ago now. Um, so it was about uh, six or seven in Tokyo area. Yeah, that's crazy. Because, yeah, you're in the epicenter. It's like they built their biggest town right over where they love to happen. Yeah, I mean, there'll be a big one here at some stage again. But uh, the the building regulations are very strict um, and uh, it minimizes any damage that does occur. So uh, that's one good thing. I can remember as a kid in the 80s, they sort of did – like a documentary on on some of the building construction and how some of them are designed with lateral movement, uh, yeah, like incorporated, and they're basically like towering slinkies that will just, yeah, uh, with pylons and things. Yeah, a lot and, of the uh, tall tower blocks they they have a uh, pendulum built into them in the top, okay. which is often a, a large uh, weight, and it will help minimize any, uh, you know. Sh- lateral movement of the building and many times they're built on rubber suspension as well 
so it can move independently of the uh the, of the earth. Yeah. Does it ever show up in polite conversation when there's like earthquakes in say San Francisco or or anywhere that there's a concern in Japan of uh, a wave coming? Um I don't remember an instance where that that was a uh, a big issue. Um, okay. Yeah, but there have throughout the years there've been uh, big tsunamis um generated from more local earthquakes. Uh, so the one 10 years ago created huge damage and the the meltdown in Fukushima power plant. Yeah. So, yeah. That was obviously that- huge um issue. Oh, when that one went off they were they were worried in Vancouver and the whole west coast that there'd yeah. be tsunami come across. Like right. the modeling I guess was such that it was just it was a no brainer. But then nothing happened. Right, but here locally, it, it traveled inland a long way in many yeah. areas, in the plains. Uh, it was amazing. And I remember turning on the TV. I was in the office, turned on the TV, and they, you could see the tsunamis coming in real time. And it was so uh, – it was surreal. You'd see people driving in cars and <laughs> the tsunami behind them, catching them yeah. up. It was like – yeah. How long did it take for things to get back to normal from, from that moment? Uh, quite a while. The, especially in the Fukushima area, uh, the damage was very extensive. The damage from the, the earthquake wasn't so much. It was a small amount, but the tsunami just carried off houses and everything in its path. Yeah. So, uh, it basically wiped out whole villages and towns. That's insane. Uh, so it took and, a, a, really a number of years to get back to, you know, relatively normal state. But the power plant area is still obviously closed off. You can't enter in there as a perimeter. Uh, is it like a radiation and that kind of worry? Or Yes. When Kim Jong-un was like testing missiles, sending them towards Japan and over Japan, like does that make people crazy or is he just a lunatic and everyone ignores him? Uh, don't ignore him, but uh, for the general person there's not so much you can do you're obviously aware of what's going on and you're watching the news hoping that uh it's not going to escalate yeah um but yeah but you're basically just watching the news seeing what's yeah, going on enough. yeah it is obviously of concern um up until now i think all of the uh missiles have been test ones and they've landed somewhere in the ocean uh, not on land um, but yeah, it's something you, you are aware of, but uh, I don't really think people are paranoid about it. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. I want to thank my guests for taking the time to sit down and chat with me. A special thank you to you, my supporters. Without you, this would not be possible. If you enjoyed the show, give it a five-star rating. And if you haven't already, be sure to like, subscribe, and share. If this is your first time listening, I encourage you to take the three-episode challenge. Once again, thank you for your continued support, and stay tuned to find out what's coming up next time.